Hello again. Thank you for clicking on to another edition of uh, Jiffy and Stubbsy. Quick resume, dual code rugby star Jonathan Davis came up with the idea of talking to influential people in sport uh, about the sporting issues of the day and days gone by. And we've had a terrific list of guests and today is absolutely no exception. Thank you to Kerry London for sponsoring this series of Jiffy and Stubbsy. We do appreciate it. It's an uncertain financial world right now. Uh, and Kerry, as leading insurance brokers, will offer you expert advice. Today's guest, uh, Britain's male tennis number one for many years, Wilmington semi-finalist, Grand Slam semi-finalist, winner on the ATP circuit, silver medalist in the Olympic Games, um, a respected broadcaster, highly respected broadcaster, and an influential figure at Wimbledon. Uh, Tim Hemman, OBE. Thank you for joining us, Tim. We do appreciate it. How much tennis do you play today? Because I read that you played on the Champions Tour. To my knowledge, Jiffy doesn't play much rugby nowadays for obvious reasons. I'm wondering how, much ten wondering how much tennis you play. Well, I think the honest um, answer to your question is I played in January. Uh, that was in Australia when I was the captain of the ATP Cup. Um, which was a new event, um, great fun, and uh, was there sort of leading the, the British team. The next time I played tennis was in August, and I was lucky enough to play with my mum and dad at Wimbledon on centre court, because on the back of the championships being cancelled, the courts were all, you know, there at the club looking immaculate, but, but didn't really have anyone to play on. So the chairman made the decision this year to open it up to the members for centre court and court one. So... Um, beginning of August was the last time I played and yeah it was a pretty special day to play with my mum and my dad uh, on centre and court one I think I should just clarify the story by saying that my mum and I um, took down um, uh, my, my dad and a lovely lady called Lorraine Gracie it was one set all we played a champions tie break and my mum and dad won it uh, my mum and I won it 9-7 another victory fantastic <laughs> Centre court at Wimbledon. We can't, we can't compare with that, Jeff, can we? Even if we could pick up a tennis racket. No, I've been there, but that's about it, really. You don't, you don't want to see me on a tennis court. I think I've started playing. I want to see Tim. Um, what's it called? Uh, paddle. Paddle uh, tennis. That's, I enjoy that. That's the next big thing, Tim, isn't it? It's a brilliant game. And, and um, it's, um, you know, with players like you, with limited ability, it certainly helps. <laughs> but uh, I really do think... For the younger generation, it's a great way to get them, you know, hand-eye coordination, bat and ball in their hand. Because it's sometimes tennis, I think, when you're young can be a bit frustrating because it's not that easy to have, you know, decent rallies. It's a big court over, a, you know, a, a net and not always easy to control. Whereas paddle um, is the similar concept, but it is so much fun. And with the walls around you, the ball can come back towards you. So um, I, I played a bit and uh, I'm a big, big, big fan. I played against a couple of mates of yours, like the Loose Moors, David, and uh, what's the other one now? Mark. Um, Mark. So, and I played with Sean Lelou, all, you know, a lot better tennis players than I am. But you can kind of hold your own in paddle tennis, and you can see, because the because they're good players, the frustration that comes out in them, because if they hit the wall, it's just brilliant fun. So we can just stand there and smash the ball back and forth. But yeah, I really enjoy it. So it's uh, a cross to be more courts in Wales. Yeah, I, th I think they're, they're looking at developing the game and building more courts. And, and obviously, it doesn't take up quite as much space as, as tennis. And, and uh, 
Um, but the guys you mentioned, David Loosemore, I was at school with him. I went to school with him from when I was 11, and he was a very talented player. And, and obviously his sister, Sarah Loosemore, was British yeah. one. And, um, and then there's, there's Mark and Kim. So they were, they were good friends. And, and Sean Leroux is, uh, is a member at Wimbledon. So um, yeah. it's, uh, it's a good crew, and it's a great game. I'll tell you what, uh, Ray, uh, Ray, one thing before I start. That the, I, can I go friendly with, with Tim doing um, some HSBC stuff and travelling, watching golf tournaments? The most sickening thing right, about Tim is uh, the fact that, one, he's very, very funny and dry, which you know, comes across sometimes in his commentary, not always, but uh, then also, right, he is the, one of the most talented sportsmen I've ever come across. We would play kind of uh, softball tennis and then we'd, Try and get the ball out of a bunker. But the most sickening thing, you had George Gregor, myself, Bernard Driscoll, and then he'd go, oh, come on. So he'd throw him a pass run, he'd catch the rugby ball and then drop goals with his left and right foot. Sickening he is. I read to play that. But golf was one of your great loves, Tim, I'm right. Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, since I, I stopped playing tennis in 2007 and, and I played a lot more golf than I have tennis, and, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, um, I'm at the addiction stage and, and um, yeah, it's, it's frustrating obviously going back into lockdown and, um, you know, for some bizarre reason, um, the golf courses are going to be shut as well. So that, that's frustrating. But, you know, we'll, we'll, um, we'll be patient. Um, but certainly when we come out of lockdown, I'll be back on the, on the course a lot. What's, what's your handicap now? I'm plus one at the moment. <laughs> You've won the championship in uh, in Sunningdale as well, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, once. Um, <laughs> yeah, all right, all right. <laughs> yeah. But no, it's uh, great fun. Um, Where did you get into it at a younger age? You must have played uh, like golf at a young age as well, Tim, did you? Yeah, I did. Um, I mean, my, my, I had two older brothers growing up and my, um, you know, my dad is, is sports mad and, and my mum is as well. So... You know, growing up, it was very much back from school and, um, you know, whether it was rugby, football, cricket, hockey, golf, squash or tennis, we, we were always playing something. And, and uh, uh, my dad was a big hockey player. And, and uh, as he got older, he actually got better because he was always he was always very fit and, and um, played for Great Britain in the age group categories. And um, he's sort of he's retired now from hockey. He's just um, he's just turned 80. So, uh, I thought I was a bit disappointed to give up at 80. I keep going, but I played hockey growing up, and and you know hockey and golf, it's, there's got to be some similarity there. So from the age of five or six, I was hitting golf balls as well, and and it's you know when you do, you know what it's like, Jiffy. You pick up the basics of something at a young age, yeah. and, and uh, it gives you the foundation. On the other side of the coin, I was never allowed to ski because of you know injuries and disability yeah. insurance. Age 34, 35, trying to learn. To ski, you know, is, is, is a lot harder. So I was glad that I had a bit of a foundation to start with from golf. Tim, I was reading and uh, you said, obviously, your family are really strong links with, uh, with sport. But grandparents and great-grandparents played at Wimbledon. So it's very much in your family genes. And for them to play at Wimbledon and you to play at Wimbledon, that's a great tradition for your family. Yes, it is. I, I, I think it's, um, yeah, it's, it's something I'm very proud of. I think people would then ask um, me, is that the reason why I played tennis? And I, I would say absolutely not. Um, you know, my two older brothers never had aspirations to play professionally. But, um, you know, for me, growing up playing a lot of sports, it was very clear in my own mind from a young age that tennis 
was what I wanted to do. My mum, luckily enough for me, took me to Wimbledon the first time when I was six. And I saw Beyond Ball play on, uh, on centre court. And, and that was pretty much where I made my one and only career decision. But then, you know, to reflect, um, you know, now and, and my grandparents um, both played at Wimbledon. My grandparents played mixed doubles um, on centre court, um, you know, in the, in the, I think, probably late 40s, early 50s. Um, no, I'll tell you exactly when it was. It was 1946 because my mum has always said that she's played on centre court. And, and up until August, we always said that's not true. But my mum was, <laughs> would point out that her mother was pregnant with my mother when they played mixed doubles um, at the championship. So my mum was sort of minus six months of age um, at, at, that, <laughs> at that time. So she, she always said, and then my great-grandmother um, also played at Wimbledon in, in sort of 1911, I think it was. So, yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty special um, family history. Your kids, uh, are your kids any shown any uh, signs of interest? Because things now, they, they tend to be, they get bored a lot quicker now with kind of social media and uh, the high-tech stuff. It's, I think it's harder for kids to make a choice and just, you know, to commit to a, to a sport. So any, any talent in the kids yet? Any interest? Um, they're, they're not not in tennis, and, and um, you know they're all active. Um, they they play a lot of sports, um, and as you say, I think you're absolutely right, Jiffy. Uh, it, you know, with all these iPads and all this technology, mm. it's very easy for them to be you know sitting inside, and um, I, I'm sure it, it, it has benefited us a lot in society to have this technology. But I, I'm a strong believer in you know an active. Um, healthy lifestyle and, and um, to get them outside exercising in the fresh air um, for their their mental well-being as well so um, they, they they play tennis they all my, my girls are 13 15 and 18 now and that they're, they're you know they they enjoy the game they play everything else but uh, I'm quite glad that that none of them have an aspiration to sort of play professionally I, th- I think in this environment it's probably the wrong surname and and um, be a lot of expectation that goes with it. Yeah, yeah. I think that would be difficult too. I agree. Tim, I'm I'm very practical. Um, people might say I'm OCD. When when you're touring the world on the circuit, how much stuff did you used to take with you? Would you travel light, or would you have bags and bags and bags? Or basically, was it have have a racket? Will travel? No, I was. Um, I mean, I. I uh, I had quite a few rackets. I would always, I would always travel with twelve, um, which does sound a lot. Um, but in terms of my my sort of team, I, I didn't like uh, I didn't like a big team. I'd have a coach, um, and then normally a physio and fitness trainer that was the same person. Um, and in and in terms of um, you know organising uh, my, my daily routine, I like to sort of keep it simple. I didn't want lots of clutter and. Um, but as you say, that sort of OCD element, I, th- I think there are plenty of sports people that have, you know, a very specific routine. And, and then when does a routine become a superstition? You look at someone like Nadal and, you know, you wonder how he functions because there are so many superstitions, whether that's, you know, in his, in his warm up, in his practice, once he gets on the court, not standing on the lines, you know, arranging his bottles um, you know, on, on the side of the court. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 uh, 
it's a strange existence at times, but when you look at what he's done recently, it's just, yeah. uh, it's absolutely incredible. You know, when you're trying on your own and, and growing up and going through kind of the, the, the younger tournaments, because coming from a, a sporting background or the team environment, you know, you're always traveling with someone, so it's not too bad, even the long journeys, you know, you, you, you have company. What was it like for you as a kid then at coping with the pressure because all of a sudden you, you get, you know, everyone kind of knows you. So from that young age, you're on your own. You're traveling mostly on your own. And the pressure, you're on your own. So how can, how, what was that like? Well, I, I think it's a really good question. Um, I think there are two sides to it. I think um, there are plenty of times, certainly when you're making your way in the professional game, you know, you're at the bottom rung of the sport. You're playing in some pretty horrible places. It's certainly not a glamorous lifestyle. You're staying in some pretty dodgy hotels and, and you're on a shoestring budget. But I think to me, it really emphasizes how badly you want it. And there were plenty of players that sort of um, experienced that. And after six months or a couple of years said, you know, it, it's not for me. I, I don't want to do this. Whereas, um, you know, my hunger and desire was, was always there to, to, to find a way. And I think you know, I wasn't one of these players that immediately broke through. I, I, I didn't break into the top 100 until I was um, probably about 20, which is uh, later than most. But I think going through that journey, it really made me appreciate um, all those stepping stones so that once I got onto the main tour to play in the Grand Slams, um, you know, I'd really earned it. I'd learned my trade. Um, but as you say, you know, in, in tennis, I think um, I was looking at uh, Djokovic in 2018. Um, you know, he, he finished world number one, but he lost 13 times that year. And, and I think in tennis, um, it's a sport that you lose a massive amount in. There's obviously only one winner each week. And you have to be able to deal, um, you know, with those setbacks. You, you can't rely on your teammates and you, you've got to understand the responsibility. And, and um, I know you'll find it hard to believe, Jeff, but, you know, I'm quite a sort of selfish character when it comes to... No, no, no. <laughs> I, I've, seen it on the sushi, I've seen it on the sushi table. My God. It's <laughs> like a horse. You've got, to, you've got to, you know, be out there and have that commitment to say, you know, you reap what you sow. What I put in is what I'm going to get out. And I, and I always enjoyed that. And so once I started playing in bigger and better tournaments, I was... I was able to really, you know, make sure that I was focusing on what I needed to do, that, you know, focus on the controllables, my preparation and performance and, you know, not worrying about everything else that was being sort of said or, or written about in the media. And, and I think that that foundation is very important. Uh, Tim, um, what was the impact on you an Olympic experience, please? Amazing. Um, Right. It's, it's, again, it's a great question because growing up, I never, I never dreamt of playing in the Olympic Games. I was a massive sports fan. I loved watching the Olympics every four years. But the cornerstones of our sport were the Grand Slams, the four majors, the Australian Open, French Open, Wimbledon and the US Open. So in uh, 84, it was a test event. I was 10 years of age. In 88, it became a recognized sport in the Olympics in, in Seoul. And so at 14, I was aware of tennis in the Olympics, but it still didn't really dawn on me. And when you looked at the field that competed in tennis in 88, it was, it was limited. It was a limited field, as I'm sure you'll both remember who won the Olympic gold in tennis. 
in uh, in Seoul. Give us a clue. He's Slovakian. <clears throat> Even Ivovic. No, he's Croatian. Oh, well, close enough. No, I wouldn't know then. Go it on. was it was Miloslav Machia. Oh no, wouldn't have gone. It, it was a very good player, but again, it was it was a limited field. Then in in '92 in Barcelona, they started to be more players that wanted the experience and to compete for Olympic gold. By the time I played in '96, there were still a few of the top names missing, but to be a part of the Olympic movement for me, um, I played in three Olympics, and I would say the opening ceremony at uh, Atlanta, Sydney, and Athens. They were probably three of the best things I ever did in sport. The, the atmosphere and, you know, to to be there in your Great Britain um, uniform tracksuit, to be all with the other athletes was an unbelievable experience. And, and then, you know, in, in 96, from a British point of view, we, we as, a, as a Great Britain team, didn't perform particularly well. We I think we only won one gold, which was the, the rowers and maybe a couple of silvers. So for us to... I was playing with a guy called Neil Broad. Um, we'd never played doubles together before and, and we beat, I think, the second seeds in the second round. And we just built this momentum and, and we started getting playing better and better. And, and all of a sudden, we're in the gold medal match um, against the Australians, against Todd Woodbridge and Mark Woodford, who were, who were one of the best teams in history. Yeah. They were for us. But, you know, I'm immensely proud to have um, an Olympic silver medal. So How different was it to play in a double? Sorry, go on. The podium experience, Tim, was uh, very special to you, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, in the the immediate aftermath, obviously stepping up, having just lost, um, was a bit disappointing. But uh, again, to to see the flag raised and have the medal round um, your neck was, was, yeah, was amazing. And and I think um, the more and more I've reflected on it, you know, post-96, I think the more special it has become because now... You know, on the back of Nadal winning in Beijing and, and then Murray going back to back in London and Rio and the Williams sisters winning so many medals, I think tennis has, has established itself so much more in, in, within the Olympic movement, which is great for the development of the game because, you know, it's relatively easy to have exposure to, to tennis in, in most parts of the world. But I think for a lot of developing countries and where people don't get that, that opportunity, um, I think the Olympics has a very big part to play. And, and again, as a golf fan, I think that is where golf can reap the rewards of being a new sport um, within the Olympic movement. Justin Rose obviously won in, in Rio. And I think that can really continue to grow the game, which is so important. I think tennis is one of those global sports. You've got, you got golf, tennis, maybe Formula One and football. I think those are the the four sports that really are, are global games. And uh, you know, going back going back to um, doubles, how difficult was it for you then, as a singles player, then to adapt to the to the doubles game again, especially you know on the stage like the Olympics? Yeah, I mean, f- for me personally, because of my game style, because I was a serve and volleyer in yeah. singles, <laughs> that's the way you play doubles. So it's actually quite easy to then you know, knit that partnership together. Whereas if you are a singles player that doesn't like to come to the net, it used to be much harder because the conditions were much faster. So really, you know, the team that got to the net first were going to be in the in the box seat, if you like. Whereas now the conditions are a little bit slower. You do get a few people playing doubles 
from the back of the court. But um, no, I, I, I did um, play a little bit of doubles in my career and, and I always enjoyed it. I really enjoyed playing Davis Cup doubles um, mm. and, and it suited my game, suited my game well. So, um, you know, that was definitely a, you know, a big reason why Neil Broad and I played so well in Atlanta. Tim, forgive me, you've been asked this question probably every day of your life, but forgive me, because I'm just keen to hear that what the Wimbledon experience actually means for you now. You're part of the organisation, you're a respected commentator at Wimbledon and elsewhere, and you reach semi-finals, and, and Wimbledon is such a special place. So I'm just keen to hear if you can describe emotionally what, what and why Wimbledon is so good. Well, um, you know, on a, on a on a global scale, when you talk about the pinnacle of the sport, the, the the players are Wimbledon's greatest spokespeople, both men and women. And if you speak to the top hundred male players, the top hundred female players, in my opinion, you'd get ninety five percent of both saying if they could win one tournament, it would be Wimbledon. And um, <clears throat> I think that goes back to the history, tradition of the tournament, the way um, the players are always put at the forefront of decisions, um, the predominantly white clothing, the green grass, how immaculate it all is. Yeah. Um, I think that's why it's, it's been so successful. Um, I touched on my history with the event going there for the first time as a six-year-old and you know, making that one and only career decision to say one day you know, that's where I want to be. So fast forward 15 years when I got my first opportunity to play on centre court, I think some people would be saying, oh, you know, you're going to be so nervous today. Whereas I, my reaction was, I spent 15 years preparing for this. So, you know, let me at it. And, and to walk out onto that court, the, the one difference is um, at Wimbledon, when you play on centre court and court one, they're the only two courts you can't practice on pretty much in, in the whole of the tennis world. Whereas at Roland Garros, at um, Australian Open, at the US Open, if you're going to play on that court later in the day, um, you, you can go out there and practice that morning. Um, whereas, you know, when you step out on, on centre court for the first time, it is the first time you're out there. But for me, I felt so comfortable because I've been preparing for it. And I was playing Yevgeny Kafelnikov, who was the uh, French Open champion, seeded three or four. And, and um, I think that was a very important first match because uh, I won 7-5 in the fifth and I saved a couple of match points. And, and I always... Um, from that moment on, felt felt so comfortable out there. Oh! What an amazing rally, full of absolutely jewels of shots. This is just. This is just sensational tennis, it really is. Well, if the clamour ever dies down...
Did your life change after that game? Because your know, expectation and the focus on Wimbledon is unbelievable. Like, whatever you go for, up for the month after Wimbledon, you can't get on a tennis court anywhere, right? So the first time you were so excited to get on and you were you ready for it, the years after that, did that change a little bit because the expectation is absolutely enormous on any <laughs> British player, especially you then? Because you were, yeah. you were fourth in the world, Tim, weren't you, at some stage? And that's an amazing achievement of a global sport to be the fourth best player in the world in an era where you had maybe some of the all-time greats playing. And you, you must be thinking, oh, bloody hell, why aren't these <laughs> older or younger? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... Um, no, to answer your first question, uh, there was no doubt that after I won that match in 96, my, my life changed just because of, you know, playing the biggest tournament in the world, being a homegrown player... And then, you know, going on making my first quarterfinals, sort of the, the attention changed. Um, but when you talk about um, the expectation and the pressure, you'll know that, that and it's easier said than done, pressure's all self-inflicted. So, yeah. you know, if I'm walking on centre court and I'm thinking about what's been written in the newspapers or what's been said on television or what's happening in the crowd or, or out on the hill, those are all things that I can't control. And at times, it could be easy to get distracted, but you have to have that, that concentration, that focus to say, this is my job today. I'm going out there. This is my style of play. This is the game plan. This is what I want to implement on the field of play. And, and you know, if you do that, then, then the other things take care of itself. I'll tell you a funny story. Um, you know, I, I would just add to that that if I could have played my whole career on one court, it would have been on centre court at Wimbledon. I, I absolutely loved it. It was the best atmosphere, the best surface, the best conditions. It was, it was amazing. In 2002, um, I'd, I'd made three um, of my four semifinals in the last four years. And I'd won my first round match on the Tuesday. And so they split the draw, the top half play um, on Monday, the bottom half play on Tuesday. So I played on Tuesday. Then on Wednesday, the top half were playing their second round. And that day, um, Agassi Sampras and Marat Safin, who was world number one at that time, um, a Russian, they all lost. But because that's in the top half of the draw, the only way that can affect me is if I get through to the final. So on the Thursday, I come into the locker room and I'm getting ready to play my second round match. So I emphasize I've only won one match. And we all share the same locker room. And I can see it. There's a few of the guys. And they've got, they've got the mirror newspaper. And they're kind of looking at it. And they kept looking over at me. And another guy's looking at me. And so eventually I sort of say, what's going on, guys? And they all sort of say, have you, have you seen the newspaper? And I said, no, I don't. During Wimbledon, I, I, I just don't read. I just don't read it. And they said, oh, you, you've got to read this. So I said, okay. So I go over and, and the front page, front page of the mirror, and this is the morning of me playing my second round, and we've got another 10 days of the tournament to go. And the headline, it says, it just says, Tim, dot, dot, dot. If you choke this year, we'll never forgive you. <laughs> and I said, I said, welcome to my world. Oh, that's <laughs> mad. That, that is mad. Extraordinary pressure. It's just, <laughs> it's just crazy. <laughs> it's funny. Are there, are, are there matches, there's another question that you know, you've been asked a million times before, but when you think back and reflect on your career, are there always 
certain games, victories or reverses, that sort of, they're the first things that come into your mind? Yeah, I mean, the easy one, and Jiffy always mentions Goran. I mean, he gave an answer to the question, Goran Ivanisevic. But um, 2001, no doubt, um, to play Ivanisevic in the semi-finals. Um, you know, he was, he was a player that is a good friend of mine. I really enjoyed playing against him. You know, I, I think I played him four times up to that match, and I've beaten him on all four occasions. He was a wild card. Um, he got through to the semi-finals, and... and you know, people remember that was before the roof on centre court. Um, and, and, you know, I was, I was lucky to be a set-all. He, he played much better than I did at the beginning. Um, I managed to win the second set on a tie-break to, to be one set-all. And then, you know, he was a very um, <laughs> unstable character at times on the court. And he knew he should have been up two sets to love. I knew he should have been up two sets to love. I then won the third set in 14 minutes, which was the quickest set I ever won in my whole career, to go up two sets to one, and it started raining. Um, we couldn't play again that day. I had to come back on the Saturday. He's had time to regroup and sort of speak to his team and get his head screwed on again. We go through to a four-set tie-break. You know, he wins the tie-break, which is a bit of a spin of a coin, and then um, it starts raining again on the Saturday, so we have to come back on, on the Sunday. And, we ended up only playing for about 15 minutes on the Sunday and he, he played a good game to break my serve and, and he won that, um, you know, 6-3 in the fifth. And, and there's no doubt that if I could play, you know, one match um, again in my career, it, it would be that um, even Isovic match. But also, um, I think some people forget, conveniently forget, that there were a lot of matches where I had rain interruptions that helped me. I was able to regroup, turn it around. But... Um, they tend to sort of forget those and, and just focus on the on the Goran match. But also, when you get into you know when you've been in Wimbledon and you're up against the British number one, the big the big hope, they're gonna everyone's gonna raise their game. You know that's that's the thing is it, when you go and play in great stadiums. I think sometimes it helps the opposition because they are thinking this is this is it. I've arrived, so I've yeah. got to play the best best I've ever played. So it's always and the pre and I said. Living with the pressure as an individual sportsman in Wimbledon, you know, the intensity of that couple of weeks is 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 unbelievable. You know, you've been there, and there's you know, Murray's been there, and yeah. you know, it's, it's just even the the unknown tennis players. All of a sudden, they have focus on them, which they've never ever had before. You know, they're on news at ten, and they've never heard of them. Yeah, yeah, no, you're absolutely right, and, and that. <laughs> Um, uh, I spoke to um, I spoke to Leighton Hewitt the other day, and then I spoke to Sampras last week. And you know, I asked them about being number one, and I said, you know, was it easier getting to number? Was it harder getting to number one, or harder staying at number one? And they said, oh, absolutely, categorically harder staying there because you are you're the target. You've got the target on your back. Everyone is is after you. Whereas when you're on the way up, you know, there's plenty of scenarios where you're the underdog. You don't have that pressure and expectation, whether that's from within or external, and you can just go out there and and you know swing away. And and um, you know, likewise, when you are a British player and and you're playing at Wimbledon, and, and I think if you've you know, there's plenty of players, um, you know, British players who probably play at Wimbledon who don't really have a legitimate chance of of winning the tournament. But I think when you when you've got that opportunity, you've got to embrace that. Um, that energy. Um, I think if you feel like it's suppressing you, then it's gonna, it's going to, you know, have a negative impact on your performance. But I think, you know, again, 
with the way that Murray has embraced that to win mm. in 2013 and 2016 and um, play the way he did in the Olympics. It's, and in his era, when you look at, he's been up against Federer and Nadal and Djokovic, it's, it's incredible what, what he's been able to achieve. Tim, that makes me uh, think in football, and I've been talking nonsense about football primarily for, for many, many years now, but we always have these conversations about comparing players from different eras, and I don't like such conversations because I think it's very hard to compare players from different eras. You can only be a player of your era in many ways because of the certain set of circumstances, and in football there's a team game as well. I guess in tennis slightly different because it's individual, but do you ever on the circuit or in uh, conversation with broadcast colleagues, when you try and look of Borg, McEnroe, go through all the years, Agassi, uh, Federer, you know all the names. Where do you stand on the conversation and do you have a habit about comparing him to him, her to her? Yeah, it's a great question. And um, I, like you, um, really don't like trying to compare eras. And I yeah. think um, it's... <clears throat> Um, it, it's in some respects even harder. So if we go back to the mid-60s and then to 68 when the, the game became open, um, you know, a lot of those top players um, in their prime of their career had turned professionals. So when you look at someone like um, Ken Rosewell, uh, and I, I want to say he won seven or eight majors, but for eight, nine, ten years in his prime, he didn't play in the Grand Slams because he had turned professional. So, you know, he yeah. probably 40 opportunities. So then you say in that when tennis became open, three of the four Grand Slams were on grass. So the Australian Open, Wimbledon and the US Open were all on grass. So if Sampras was playing three of the four majors on grass, how many would he have won? And then, yeah. you know, you, you bring it into a more... <coughs> into the more um, modern time, Borg never played the Australian Open because at that stage, it wasn't really um, considered on the same level as the other three slams. Um, you know, he won six French Opens, five Wimbledons, and quit at the age of 25. Um, and now, now you look at, um, you know, these three, when you look at Federer, Nadal and Djokovic, um, they won 57 majors between them. And you talk about, you know, you talk about different eras. You know, no disrespect to my era of Sampras and Agassi, who were, were brilliant players, don't get me wrong. I think if you put Murray in my era, or, or perhaps slightly before that, I, I think he wins seven or eight. But, yeah. you know, he's done bloody well to win three against three of the greatest male players of all time. What was, your, what was your, you know, did you, was Borg your hero growing, growing up? Borg was my hero growing up. Um, but, you know, not right now, when you ask me who's the greatest male player of all time, I personally would say it's Federer right now. But I don't think that will be the case in four or five years because I think Nadal and Djokovic will overtake him in terms of main titles one. And if you are going to just quantify the greatest by the most Grand Slams, I think Djokovic will end up having the most Grand Slams. Do you, do you see, do you know when you were the players that you played against? Do you, you know, what do they do now? Or do you, do you ever, you know, stay in touch with them or bump into them now and again? 
Yeah, I do. With with my involvement at Wimbledon, I'm on the on the tournament board there and and um, doing a bit more um, work in in television with Prime Video. Um, it's important to stay in touch to know what's happening, you know, on the men's tour, on the women's tour. Obviously, it's been a very, very challenging time with um, with this global pandemic. Tennis is is doing a good job, I think, to slowly work its way out of that. Um, but those friendships, those camaraderie, uh, that camaraderie is is probably the only element that I, I miss about the game. I, I don't miss all the tournaments, the training, the travel, but. Um, you know, those friendships that I had when I was on the tour are uh, um, ones that I definitely try and um, preserve and, and keep in touch with because there are a lot of great friends who I spent a lot of great times with. What's it, what's it like working with McEnroe in, uh, in Wimbledon? Because you and him seem to hit it off, you know, brilliantly. Yeah, I mean, he can talk underwater, uh, <laughs> but uh, he's, uh, he's great value. He's got a great sense of humour and... and uh, yeah, I, I really enjoy his company, both you know, on and, and uh, off the screen. So um, yeah, I think he, it's funny how, in actual fact, towards the end of his career, he really didn't enjoy coming to Wimbledon because he used to get such a hard time from the, you know, the press and the media, and he sort of didn't turn up for seven or eight years, and then he's come back to work with the BBC, and and everyone loves him. So uh, yeah, it's it's interesting to see how his uh, journey has evolved. But uh, no, he's a good friend of mine. Um, Tim, here's an anorak question. Do you, do you keep rackets from down the years, from your really big games? Uh, are you a collector, uh, sporting memorabilia-wise? Are your best rackets somewhere? No, I haven't. I mean, I, I've probably got a few um, old rackets of, of different colours, shapes and sizes in the, in the attic somewhere. Um, I, I'm just not, uh, I mean, I haven't. I'm looking around. I, I, I'm not. I, I'm not sure. I've got a picture anywhere of anything tennis related. I've got a few trophies of my Olympic medal um, in a cupboard somewhere in there. But um, no, I'm, I'm, don't get me wrong. I'm very proud of of my whole sort of tennis journey and, and everything that I was um, able to achieve. But I, I'm I'm always I'm always someone that's looking forward. Really, I don't necessarily look back. I'm, I'm much more concerned about when I can get back on the golf course than, you know, winning a tournament or losing in a semi-final. Uh, time has beaten us. Tim, we're really grateful for your time today. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. And uh, if, Jiffy, hope you're well. Take care uh, yeah, I've, I, yeah, I've got to say, because I, I wanted Tim to get on, because when I, when I was kind of due to meet Tim, I got all kind of uh, nervous and quiet because, you know, we're coming from different kind of you know, sports, and, and he didn't mention the story about the Swiss, the Swiss hotel room, which he left in a mess. But the mother, we'll keep that for the next time, right? So, and then uh, we 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 hit it off, right? Because what are you going to think of it, right? The, the the kind of people's image of him, or you know, he's trim and proper tennis, you know, combs his hair every day, hasn't got one grey hair in his head. Look at him, right? He is such a funny guy, right? And a ferocious competitor. So whenever <laughs> we were anywhere, we'd like have a laugh and a joke and then we'd have a couple of glasses of red wine. And I just think, you know, that's what sport is all about. You know, whatever sport you're in, individual kind of um, team effort, uh, tennis, rugby, hockey, golf, it's just that common bond that you can get on with everyone yeah. I, and I really enjoyed it so I'm just going to say you know, when when you're chairman of Wimbledon can I come and sit in the Royal Box is that okay I mean 
If I were chairman of uh, Wimbledon, I'm sure I'd have influence, but I'm not sure I'd have that much influence to get you. <laughs> Jiffy, Jiffy, you've got every chance of going on Henman Hill. I'll say that much. You've got a chance of going on Henman Hill, I would say. Uh, Tim, thank you very much. Thanks to Kerry London for sponsoring Jiffy and Stubbsy. We do appreciate your time, Jiffy. We appreciate your help, Kerry. Take care, guys. Everybody stay safe. Pleasure. Cheers, Tim. Cheers, Tim. Thanks. Cheers. And thanks for listening to Jiffy and Stubbsy. Hope you'll join us again. Please hit the subscribe button.